Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. One of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world that there are millions of ways to be a human being and and many ways no but many paths to what you call god and her path might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light but her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her if it brings her to the same point that it brings you it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way one way or not. and only one way and there that is through be. Jesus there couldn't possibly be with because a million you of people say in the world. there is there couldn't possibly be friends this world is on fire and whether we can see the flames or smell the smoke the end of all things is near scripture says of Christ that there is no other name by which we can be saved. Jesus himself said, Narrow is the gate, and few are those who find it. Jesus himself proclaimed that no man comes to the Father except by him. There is one way. His name is Jesus. You've found your way out of the blaze, and you hear the cries of those still trapped. Do you avoid the criticism and judgment of fools to remain where you are? Or do you enter the fire to show others the only escape? There's not much time. The choice is yours. This is a moral authority, desiring good and, and shunning evil. And we know that that creator, that moral authority, is the biblical God and his son, Jesus Christ. We know that as Christians. What do we do with it? How about a one-word answer? Go. Tonight, we tackle the fourth and final pillar of our series, this one entitled The Mission. Where do Christians go? What do we do? I have to tell you that I've been amazed and humbled by uh, all of you being here and, and the support that you've given me. We've sold out of the DVDs, but we have more at home. If you're wanting those, please sign up on the paper and we'll get them mailed out to you tomorrow. We're also missing DVDs and booklets from our other class. We have those at home, so if you want to sign up and order those, I'll get them out to you first thing in the morning. I just would have never anticipated the the wonderful, loving response that you all have given us, and that's a great problem to have, but I am sorry about, uh, about running out. But make sure that you sign up with your address and I'll get it to you. But as we close this series... To me, this is one of the most important things that we can talk about. What is it that you and I are to do? There's a word that kind of defines Christianity, or at least Christians are well aware of, and it's a word that I've always struggled with. I don't really like the term. The word is evangelism. Now, is there anything biblically wrong with evangelism? Obviously not. Is there anything wrong with the word evangelism? No, not at all. But it's always been a word that if I'm going to be completely open and upfront and honest with you, I've always kind of struggled with this. And for some reason, my uh, clicker is struggling as well, and it doesn't want to do anything. Did you all mess with it back there? We've been just fine. I think it's your fault because you haven't been back. Oh, there it is. Okay. It's an interesting word. I'm going to stop criticizing people. It's an interesting word. This is Jesus's policy of not taking responsibility for your own actions. I'm putting that into practice here. It's not my fault. It's got to be somebody else's. Evangelism is an interesting word, and and, and it's one that's always made me a little uncomfortable because I've always seen this term over-associated with folks like that. 
People who use the power of God's word to bring about their own prestige. People who use the power of God's own word to bring about glory and preeminence and power and profit for themselves. And I think that evangelism has been tied into televangelism and because of that it's gotten a bad name because the truth is that as Christians we shouldn't be upset or we shouldn't be uncomfortable with the word evangelism. For a true Christian, evangelism is a necessity for living a Christian life. Jesus doesn't give us the option. He gives us a command when, with regard to evangelism. If we are Christians, we better get over any uneasiness we have about the word because it is a direct command from our authority figure, from the Savior Himself, He said this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Look at the first two words, therefore go. Not therefore hang back and hope somebody else does it. Or uh, therefore rest on your laurels and your morals. It says therefore go. One of these great theologians that has existed in, in the history of the world, one of the great philosophers of our time, helped bring this out. And I think that you'll understand it when you hear him say it rather than me. This concept of going. just say they don't make cartoons like Wile E. Coyote anymore. I'm sorry, nothing beats Wile E. Coyote. But I don't know if you caught the sign that Wile E. Coyote holds up in the air for everybody to see. If you didn't, this is what it said. And I believe this is one of the most theologically profound questions that a Christian should be asking themselves every single day. In the name of heaven, what am I doing? What am I doing for heaven's sake? Maybe is another way to say it. How often as Christians do we actually contemplate, think about, dwell on this question? Well, we think about what we're doing for the purposes of our career. We think about what we're doing to raise healthy and happy families. We think about what we're doing to even help the church grow. But in the name of heaven, what am I doing? This should be a question that's at the forefront of every single Christian's mind every single day that we live. So I tell you what, let's dive into this step-by-step -step instruction on how to win people to Jesus Christ. Let's dive into the New Testament and figure out all the instructions on, on, on effective point-by-point -point evangelism. We'll just get out the guide and we'll read exactly how to go about winning somebody to Christ. You know what you find? It isn't there. You can comb through the entire New Testament and you're not going to find a subject heading that says how to make sure everybody you come into contact with becomes a Christian. It's not there. I've looked. You're not going to find it. Consider Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, the great Christian uh, theologian Paul himself. He writes all of these books in the New Testament and he speaks of evangelism, going out and winning people to Christ a handful of times at best. Handful. But you know what Paul spends his entire books writing about? Has anybody ever noticed this? That Paul spends the entirety of his books talking about good Christian living. You want to know why? Because Paul recognized the best tool of evangelism is setting yourself apart 
being different than the culture around you. Good Christian living is the best tool you will find for evangelism. It's why in Romans he wrote, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You die to yourself every day. You put your interests, your selfish interests, behind and live holy and pleasing lives towards God. You don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I don't think we get that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. I believe it's one of the big pitfalls of the church that we try too hard to be like the world. We think that if we're more like the world, we're going to attract more people in. And that's the exact opposite of what Paul is commanding us, what God is commanding us in Romans. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Do we live in a crooked and depraved generation? Are you kidding me? Have you walked through the supermarket checkout line and the magazines that surround you? Sex sells a can of Pepsi. You can't turn on the television without being bombarded with it. Do we live in a crooked and depraved generation? Absolutely we do. Does your life shine like a star in the universe? You ever walked out in a pitch black night and the stars are just sticking out like a sore thumb? That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Does your life stick out like a sore thumb? When people look at you, do they say, whoa, there's something different about this person. There's something different about this girl. There's something different about this guy than everybody else. Because if, it do, if they don't, if they don't notice something distinctly different about your life, you're not shining like a star in the universe. And what about Peter, the leader of the disciples? We saw what Paul said. What did Peter say about winning pagans to Christ? He said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's not talking about a point-by-point -point step towards evangelism. He's talking about living such good lives that even the people that despise you, when they try to hurl accusations against you, they'll just fall flat because they know there's no way that this person was engaged in that activity. For it's, it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. You're going to silence people's foolish talk and the foolish accusations they hurl against you and the cause of Christ. Why? Because your life shines like a star in the universe. You are set apart for something bigger, something better. You see, I believe that the church gets so caught up in wanting to bring people in to hear the gospel. Please listen to me. This is such an important point. We get so caught up in trying to bring people inside our doors to hear the gospel message. We have each one reach one Sundays. Uh, we, we transform what we do. We have art shows and all kinds of stuff. Uh, car shows and there's nothing wrong with those don't get me wrong but we are we become so obsessed with trying to get people in our doors to hear the gospel that we don't realize we should be showing them the gospel every single day there shouldn't be a, a set aside time where we're super christians when we come inside these doors because let me contend something to you if if christians were more obsessed with showing people the gospel every single day we wouldn't have to try so hard to bring people inside our doors. They would be knocking on our doors wanting to come in because they would look at Christians and say, there is something different about these people, the way that they love, the way that they treat each other, the way they believe in even their enemies and care for them. There's something different. I want what they've got. And you're not going to have to have an each one reach one Sunday because you're going to be flowing over with visitors that want to know what's going on in this place. You see, I don't believe God's looking for prophets. He's not looking for modern-day Moseses, or Mosai would be the plural there. That's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for Mosai to part the seas today. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for people who know the Word, who believe the Word, and who live the Word. Something very simple, but yet all too often so difficult in our churches today. People who know the Word, who believe the Word, and who live the Word. Look at Ephesians. 
Look at what Paul tells us throughout the book of Ephesians. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore do not be partners with them I want you to stop for a second if we were obsessed with knowing and living the word if amongst Christians there wasn't any unwholesome talk ever coming out of our mouths that there was no bitterness and rage and anger brawling and slander even towards those that we disagreed with if there wasn't a hint of sexual immorality amongst us if we were shining like stars removing greed and impurity if there was no such thing amongst, God people, amongst God's people of disobedience to Him and His authority, do you not think that people would be attracted to that? Do you not think it might set some people back to say, whoa, what is this movement of Christianity all about? The instructions are there. We're just terrible at following the instructions. Maybe that's why Brendan Manning made this famous quote. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You know, uh, last Sunday night, I played for you the clip of the debate I had with Ellen Johnson, the president of American Atheists. There's a lot of atheists that I would not want to have to go toe-to-toe with in a debate. They're brilliant people. I don't want to have to debate Richard Dawkins. I don't want to have to debate a lot of these folks. But can I tell you something? You take all your Richard Dawkinses, Christopher Hitchens, and your Carl Sagans, you put all of their power together, and they cannot do the damage to the kingdom of God that you can. You wear the name of Christ, and because of that, you have more power to destroy what God wants to do in this country, in this society, in this culture, in this world, than any atheist could ever hope to have. That brings us to what I think is the most compelling and most intimidating verse of all of Scripture. It's the one that every single day sends chills down my spine when I read it because I'm in disbelief that this is really the way things work. 2 Corinthians 
we are ambassadors for God. God making his appeal through us. The way that he's going to win the world is through the injured flesh of you and I. If that isn't the most intimidating verse of scripture, I don't know what is. You know, I was sitting in class. It was my first year teaching. Maybe it was my second. It was my second year teaching. And a senior that year went to my church there in in the community where I live. And he was in one of my classes. And we got to talking about uh, uh, living a good life and all of this. And he asked me the question. He challenged me in front of the entire class. And he said, Mr. Heck, why does it matter to you so much what people think of you? Why do you care so much what people think of you? Why can't you just live your life the way that you want to live your life or the way that you should live your life and not care what other people say, what other people think, what other people believe? Why are you so obsessed with what other people think of you? I could not believe, number one, that the student was challenging me, challenging me like that, but, but secondly, that this was a young man from my church who was asking me that question. You see, a Christian doesn't believe, oh, it doesn't matter what others think of you. A Christian knows the exact opposite is true. Why? Because what others think of you, if you wear the name of Christ, others think of Christ. That's one of the most profound things in the world. Christians know that isn't true. What they believe of you, they believe of Christ. If you want to live the way you want to live and not care what people think of you, fine. Take off the name of Jesus and have at it. You've got, probably got about 80 years, and I hope you live it up and enjoy it. But if you're wearing the name of Christ... It matters what other people think of you. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.20 You are Christ's ambassador. You are carrying his name to a lost generation. What are you doing with that name? If you're dragging it through the mud, you are doing more damage to the cause of Christ than any atheist could ever hope to have. But it doesn't end with good living. 1 Peter tells us, and it was the theme verse for this whole series, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And we as Christians fail this as well. God's given us a command to be ready, to give a ready response for what it is we believe and why we believe it so that we don't lose the opportunity to win someone else to Christ. You know, we're commonly of the belief and we're commonly told, even in our Christian churches, that the Bible is the word or the sword of God. Many consider the Bible the weapon of choice for the Christian. And I believe that they're wrong. Now, I know some of the theologians in the crowd are getting very uncomfortable right now. Hang with me. I promise you'll see where I'm going with this. Too many of us believe that the Bible is our weapon. And we carry it around in schools. We carry it around in public. We put it on our desk at work. And we believe that that Bible is our defense. It's our sword. It's our shield. And we're going to be able to protect ourselves. But that's not what Hebrews teaches us. Hebrews teaches us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. What is? The word of God is. The Bible is just a book. What is inside the Bible's covers is where the power lies. That's the word of God. The Bible is a book. The power is the word. The Bible, if you will, is an armory. An armory is no good if it contains no weapons. And too many Christians carry a book around but never open the book. We don't train ourselves in the word. We don't train young people in the word. In other words, you're sending an army off to go do battle with weapons but no bullets in their guns. How long would a military force last if it didn't have any ammunition in its guns. And yet that's exactly what we do. We send our young people off to the secular universities to do battle with what Paul calls every notion and idea that sets itself up against the the word of God, the authority of God. We send them there, and what happens to them? They come back beaten and bloody and abused and having done immense damage to the kingdom. And some of them 
end up converting to the other side. That young man that I just told you about that asked me that question is now a committed Darwinist and an atheist who doesn't even believe that God exists. He grew up in my church. What happened? He went to do battle for the cause of Christ, but he had no guns. He had no weapons. He was not trained in the word of God. What do we tell people? Oh, go talk to unbelievers. Go talk to unbelievers because God will tell you what to say. You know, when people start freaking out, well, I don't know what I'd say to them if I go to evangelize. We say, oh, don't worry about it. It's too important. God wouldn't let you mess up. He'll give you the words to say. Hold on a second, folks. He already has. He already has given you what to say. It's the word. It's in the scriptures. And if you're not opening the scriptures and training yourself, if we're not training the next generation with the word of God, then we're not equipping ourselves to do battle with the world. Now, are we? Don't say God will tell you what to say. He already has told you what to say. And it's your choice as to whether or not to train yourself with regard to that. And this leads us to the last element that God desires of us when it comes to evangelism, and that's resilience. You see, my friends, the battle didn't begin with us. And the battle is not going to end with us. The battle will rage on until Jesus decides enough's enough. And it's at that point that the battle ends. But not a moment sooner. You and I are merely foot soldiers in a battle that will continue until God has said, that's it. And as such, we need to be trained, ready to do battle, and recognize our enemy is not going to roll over. Our enemy is not going to give up. Our enemy knows the end result. He's read the end of the book. He lost 2,000 years ago on a bloody confrontation at a hill called Calvary where Jesus Christ rose from the dead three days after his crucifixion that you saw this morning, and he conquered Satan's Satan, sin and death for all eternity. Amen? Amen. And Satan knew from that moment it's over. And he's trying to take as many of us with him as he possibly can because he knows the end result. He's not going to roll over. He's a crouching lion ready to devour us. You've watched the Discovery Channel. You know how that works. And Satan's lurking, waiting to attack. Well, how does he devour us? <laughs> this is actually a pretty simple concept. You know how we talk, by the way, about how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? God's character is the same? Can I contend to you that the devil, though he changes his tactics, has remained the same and always will be? I want you to look at the way he, he crouches and, and devours people. He does it through doubts. Say doubts like, well, Jesus was good, a good guy, but nobody raises from the dead. He puts doubts in our minds. How about out-and-out out, out out denials? Well, the Bible doesn't demand that I believe in creation. I can believe in evolution, too. He puts a denial in our mind. Or how about temptations? If you, just, if you don't necessarily live that way, I will give you the acceptance and prosperity of the world that you can never imagine. And for so many, that, that's, that's too much. That's too much of a temptation for us. Lust, the concept of if it feels good, do it. Is that prevalent in our culture? Or pride? Maybe we believe, well, that part of Scripture is outdated. It's irrelevant. It's not important. Barack Obama told us that. Romans, it's an irrelevant part of Scripture. We don't need to pay attention to it. You see, my friends... Satan's tactics are right in front of us. And you know what? They haven't changed. Go back to the Garden of Eden. First thing that he said to Eve, what was it? Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit? What is that? Doubt. Implanting doubt in Eve's mind. You surely will not die. God said you're going to die. You're not going to die. Flat out denial of what God had said. Eve saw that it was good to eat. Temptation. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. Lust. And she saw that it was good for gaining wisdom. Satan told her, you shall be as God. Pride. Satan's tactics haven't changed. 
If you and I were in the Word, we'd know that, and we'd be prepared to respond. How should we respond? The same way as Jesus. Satan tried this on Jesus, if you remember. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And how did Jesus respond? Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan didn't give up. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone but Jesus answered him again it is also written do not put the Lord your God to the test Satan would try one last time again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor all this I will give you he said if you will bow down and worship me Jesus said to him away from me Satan for it is written worship the Lord your God and serve him only then the devil left him three times the devil tried his temptations on Jesus and three times how did Jesus respond three words it is written Jesus knew the defense for a Christian he knew where the power was it's in the word of God can we today respond in the same way if Satan challenged us could we respond it is written I contend you to you we couldn't church has not become about memorizing and understanding and learning scripture anymore sadly church has become too much of a, a theater a production and it's not focused on the Word of God. Is there a place for all of those other things? Absolutely, it's great. But if churches are not focused on teaching the Word of God, we are crippling the next generation of Christians. And we are doing immense damage to the kingdom of God here in the United States. We're told 15 times in the Old Testament to stand firm. 20 times in the New Testament, stand firm. That's what a living sacrifice is. Surrendering and offering everything you have and everything you are. You see, I don't think a lot of Christians even understand what Christianity is. That's a wild concept, isn't it? It's a wild statement to make. But I don't think we really know. I would contend to you that there are those of us here in the building tonight who, if, if they really understood what Christianity was, they'd say, I'm not sure I want any part of that. I'm not sure I really want that. I know that's a wild statement to make. You know what Christianity is? Jesus told us. Take a look at it. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Do we even remember this passage anymore? I mean, we look at that and we say, that seems so dramatic. That seems so extreme. I mean, he just wanted to bury his dad. And Jesus said, no, follow me instead. He just wanted to say goodbye to his family. It seems so dramatic, so extreme. Yeah, that's because a commitment to Christ is supposed to be dramatic and extreme. It is supposed to be a life-altering, life-changing event. And if it's not if it's merely something that fits into your daily schedule, if it's merely a convenience for you, if it's merely a Sunday morning and every so often Sunday evening activity, then you don't have the right concept of what Christianity is. It is a daily sacrifice, surrendering yourself and living for the cause of Christ. It's not easy. But no man who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't think that there are a lot of Christians who truly understand that concept. And if they did... I'm not sure that they want to be part of the group because it requires too much. Oh, we sing the song, I surrender all, but we don't really want to have to believe it. I surrender all but my politics. I surrender all but my desire for power. I, des I surrender all except my personal finances. Whatever it is that we fit in there, there's something that we hold back. No man who puts his hand to the plow 
and turns back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. A commitment to Christ is supposed to, to be dramatic. But that isn't the entirety of the mission. I've hit you hard with the concept of evangelism, but that's not it. That's part one. A lot of Christians will seal the deal after that. Evangelism, that's it. That's all we're called to do. But that's not true. You see, part one is the idea of the Great Commission. It's a religious challenge that Christians are given, a religious charge, a command, an obligation. But Christians also have a cultural command, and we oftentimes ignore this as well. We learn this in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give it light, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's part of our challenge. It's part of our charge. And yet, what do we do? We take our faith and we keep it in a little church. We're not too interested in going out and impacting our culture with it because we don't want to be mocked and criticized. We don't want to be called one of those radical right-wing Christian fundamentalist extremist nut jobs. Can you tell I've heard that before? Uh, we don't want to be called one of those people, and so we keep God in his little box called the church, and we come and see him on Sunday mornings and say hi to him, but the rest of life, we run ourselves. We handle it ourselves. That's not what a Christian is to do. You see, we have a command to promote moral truth in our culture. We are called to promote moral truth and to stand for moral truth. The world cannot and should not be expected in any way or forced to follow a strict Christian code. That's nowhere in the Bible. You can't find that in the Bible anywhere. But when it comes to those basic natural law concepts that we talked about last Sunday evening, it's imperative that we seek compliance with those things, even amongst unbelievers. It's our charge. It's, and now, some people are going to object, and they're going to say, number one, well, our founding fathers forbid religious establishment. Sorry, you can't have a national religion, and therefore you can't expect people to follow your moral code. Whoa, hold on just a second. There's a significant difference between expecting somebody to follow a strict religious code and expecting someone to follow moral principle that may come from a religion. A big difference between the two. To say the founding fathers forbid the establishment of moral principle, it, well, it's historically uninformed. It's, it's one of the dumbest things that you could ever say. The Declaration of Independence itself is a statement on natural law. You remember this thing? He taxed us without our consent. He burned our towns and villages. He plundered our seas. He ravaged our coasts. All of this stuff that the king did wrong. Well, if the king did something wrong, then that must mean that there's something right that would be a better way to treat people. In other words, our founding fathers believed the king's edicts were simply wrong. It was immoral legislation. Remember, they wrote, he has refused his assent or his agreement to laws, the most wholesome laws and necessary for the public good. If laws can be wholesome and necessary, well, then there must be some element of morality that's, in, that's interspersed with them. The purpose of the declaration was to highlight the injustices of the king and to argue why independence was the better choice. But why write the declaration? That's the question. Why would they write it? Well, they said they were going to prove that the king was wrong and the colonists were right. And then Jefferson said this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And he started listing off all of the reasons. But why would we expect the rest of the world to agree with us unless... There is some absolute moral code that exists that Jefferson knew all men would understand and all men would appreciate. This fairness came to the same to all people. Jefferson called it the laws of nature. Nature's God has entitled us with this. Moral law is this concept, and we've talked about it. And you see it peppered throughout the document. Truths, self-evident, endowed by their creator, unalienable, the just powers of government. I want you to notice the phrase, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. In other words, the Founding Fathers believed that these rights came from God. It was an act of the will of God to give mankind these rights. 
And therefore, since they came from God, they're absolute and universal. They apply to all people, all times, all places, everywhere. We have these rights. They are unalienable because they've come from God. If they're unalienable, my friends, then should we not be standing for them still today? Absolutely, we should. Too many Christians don't understand that. We can know the founding fathers believed there was a higher authority, a creator, because they wrote it in there. That, that It's a standard that all rules and acts and decrees must acknowledge, and therefore they appeal to that to be their basis for their sovereign claim to independence. And we could get more into detail on all of this, but simply understand this. Is it unconstitutional to legislate morality? Please understand how ignorant of a statement that is. It is beyond ridiculous to say it's unconstitutional to legislate morality when the guys who wrote the Constitution thought it was the job of government to legislate morality. It's one of the most absurd arguments you could ever make. It's not unconstitutional. So they say, okay, well, it's not unconstitutional, but it's still an improper use of government power. Christians shouldn't be focused in the government realm. It's no business for a Christian there. Please understand, we have never believed that as a people. We have never believed that as a people. In fact, the whole purpose of government, according to the declaration is to do what to secure the rights of the people if you're securing the rights of the people how do you do that you restrict bad behavior but if you're restricting bad behavior are you not taking a stand on some moral principle all of our murder laws rape laws molestation laws polygamy laws slavery laws all of them use a moral basis to exist we have always understood that as a people we get that plus this 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 objection is intellectually dishonest it's self-contradictory to say this law is an improper use of power because you shouldn't declare something proper or improper uh, the statement itself is self-contradicting the people supposedly against legislating morality are trying to impose on everyone else the moral position that imposing moral positions shouldn't be done in other words you ought not impose ought nots it's intellectually dishonest to make such a statement. Ironically, these people who are supposedly against legislating morality are all about doing it so long as it's their morality that's being legislated. That's the big problem, the big catching point that a lot of Christians don't grasp and therefore we fail in impacting our culture. All laws declare one act to be wrong and another act to be right. Therefore, all laws are legislating some view of morality. And if Christians are not involved in the process... Whose morality is going to be legislated, friends? Oh, but legislating moral truth is ineffective. All right, so it's not unconstitutional. It's not improper, but it's still ineffective. You see, people are going to violate the moral law regardless, so it's useless to try to legislate it. It's, you know, it's just a matter of the heart, and nobody can do this. I don't know if you remember for, former Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders, but she made this suggestion with the drug war. She basically said, since they're going to do it anyway, we can't do much to stop them, we might as well get something out of it. Let's tax illegal drugs, and at least then the government will begin something out of it because people are going to do it anyway hold on a minute people are going to do it anyway so we're just going to tax it and that she's not the only one eleanor clift she's a newsweek columnist on the mclaughlin group she once argued we should legalize prostitution why prostitution is the oldest profession in the world we're not going to stop it well we're not going to stop it so we might as well legalize it and make it okay barack obama argued for the decriminalization of pot he said i think we need to rethink and decriminalize our marijuana laws that's his exact statement you see, people are going to do it anyway, so let's just let them do it. Let's make it legal and everything is okay. I want you to understand how absurd this is. Do you know in Canada they have places called safe houses? You know what a safe house is? It's where people come to a government facility and they're given, given clean syringes. I'm not making this up. Clean syringes so that they can do illegal drugs. Illegal drugs. The government of Canada decided we've got a lot of disease that's spreading around because drug abusers are using the same needles. So let's build a government facility and give them clean syringes so that they can do illegal drugs. Is anybody else here sitting here saying, wait just a minute, if they're illegal, 
then why is the government allowing them to come in and encouraging that behavior? Shouldn't you just drop a big net on the building and then you've caught them all? To me, that would make sense. And we laugh at this and we think that this is dumb. We've got this right here in the United States, don't we? We've got this. Have you, have you heard the argument to defend the practice of abortion? Well, it should be safe, legal, and rare. Listen, this campaign season, you'll hear that phrase, I guarantee it. Safe, legal, and rare. Wait a minute. Why do you want it rare? Why rare? If there's nothing immoral about it, so you're going to have it legal, there's obviously nothing wrong with the act, then why do you care whether it's rare or not? The very fact that you want it rare demonstrates there's something not right about the act. But if there's something not right about the act, why do you have facilities that are getting government money where you're allowing people to come in and do it? Imagine us building a molestation center. Well, we're going to allow men to bring the kids in and molest them here so that when they're done, we can treat the kids and it'll be done in a safe and legal way. Or we build the spousal abuse rec hall and men can bring their wives in, or in my case, my wife would bring me in and beat the jack out of me and then I could get the medical yeah you're laughing because you know it's true uh, I could get the medical attention that I need after it's over why wouldn't we do that or the racism complex you bring somebody in and hurl all of these racial epithets at them and, 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 and insult them and everything else and then they can get the psychological treatment they need when you're done why do we laugh at these things because if something is wrong you have a law against it if something is improper, whether or not it's easy to stop it, you have a law against it. What about murder? Are we ever going to stop murder from happening? Of course not. So does that mean we legalize it? I mean, it's absurd. How far do you want to take it? Even if we have murder laws, it's tough to control. It's tough to prevent. So then we could, we could save, couldn't we, on law enforcement? We wouldn't have to pay as many police officers. We wouldn't have to pay court costs. If we just legalized murder, well, free for all. Just let people do what they want to do. We're going to save money. Obviously, we think that that's one of the dumbest ideas in the world because if something's wrong, you legislate against it. Murder, prostitution, drug laws, they may not prevent the act entirely, but they are necessary to restrain evil. They reduce the frequency of such activities, and that's why we have them. The fact is, we have to seek laws that protect the unalienable rights of you and I, of mankind, of the people that God has given us. And those laws must not be based subjectively on whatever's popular. Well, prostitution's pretty popular, so let's go ahead and legalize it. Pot's pretty popular. Let's go ahead and legalize it. No, they must be based on the moral law that declares whether or not something's popular, it's right or it's wrong. And you want to know who has a keen understanding of those concepts? Christians. And if Christians are staying in the salt shaker and not spreading themselves out throughout their culture, these types of laws are never going to be made. And we're directly responsible for the negative consequences that befall our society. Regardless of what people are doing, a law should say what should be done. And the question of enforceability is therefore irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you can enforce it. If it's wrong, there's a law against it, period. Well, but Peter, laws can't make people good. Even if you do that, law isn't going to change somebody's heart. And for the Christian, this is what really confuses us, because we know that. We know the cross can do what politics can't. I cannot save somebody. I cannot bring somebody to salvation with the law. I get that. I understand that. And Christians do. And that's exactly how we're so easily misled on this. Clearly, a person's heart isn't changed because we're, we're successful in changing a law. I understand that. You understand that. Their salvation is dependent on their per own personal recognition of their failures and appeal to Christ as their Savior. And that doesn't happen from legislation. But I want you to remember what this guy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., once said. Very profound statement. This guy was pretty sharp. And he once said, It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important. Uh, pretty simple, is it not? Even if the law cannot make one's heart change, it can protect the unalienable rights of one another. And that's what our law is to do. And you and I have to be the ones giving voice to that. 
You see, you think of it in a practical example. You, the, uh, the authority structure in your home, several of you have kids, or maybe you are kids, and so you know that there are certain rules that you have to follow in your home, or you're expected to follow. For uh, my parents, uh, they had one that was no jumping on the furniture. We were not allowed to jump on the furniture. Now, when mom and dad were around, we followed those rules. We followed them very closely. But I was always under the impression that when mom and dad were not around, those rules were up to our own discretion. That was, that was my understanding. And so the moment they weren't there, what did I do? I got on the bed, and I started jumping up and down, and I decided to be Superman, and I jumped off and put my upper teeth through my lower lip, and I had to go and get, a, oh yeah, look at me trying to explain that. I wasn't jumping on the bed, I promise. No, it just, my teeth randomly just shot through my lower lip. It was bizarre. They grew so rapidly. But anyway, uh, th- so this is, this is what happens. Mom and dad have rules, but it didn't change my heart, did it? I still wanted to do, I desired to do something that I wasn't supposed to do. And you know that. You have established rules. And when you're around, your child follows them because they don't want to get into trouble. But the minute you're not there, they engage in that action. So what does that tell you about what your rules did to their heart? You have a rule, but did it change their heart? No, they still desired evil. And if you don't believe your child still desires evil, then you're even more naive than I am, all right? Their sinful desire doesn't leave just because you have a rule. So how do you respond to that as a parent? Do you simply say to them, Well, I'm afraid my laws and my rules haven't changed your heart, so I'm going to have to abandon all rules in the household. It's now a free-for-all. I'm I'm sorry, my rules didn't do what I was hoping they would do. You want a recipe for chaos in the home, there it is. Then why do we accept that notion in our society? Why do we accept that notion in our culture? Well, the law can't change people's hearts, so we, we might as well not even have any laws. It's absurd. But again, to somebody who doesn't come from the foundation that you and I come from, so oftentimes it's so easy to get confused. Do you see why we have to be the light of the world and not putting our light under a a, a bushel? Isn't that how the song goes? We're not supposed to do that. Even if laws don't change hearts, they're necessary to restrain evil. Some limits have to be placed on human behavior to protect life and liberty and property. And this has been understood from the dawn of civilization. It's been understood in every civilization that's ever existed. Every civil society, moral laws are necessary for the survival of any society. A lawless society is a self-destructive society. It will not last. It will not stand. Guaranteed 100% of the time. You see, the law has a certain restraining effect by itself. Just the law existing will tell people something's moral or immoral. What do I mean by that? When you legalize immoral behavior, when you make an immoral act legal, give it enough time and people will start believing that that immoral act is moral because it's legal. Uh, Or people believe what's legal is moral. That's one way to say it. Legalization will lead to more immoral behavior. Uh, This is confusing, so let me give you two historical examples. It'll make complete sense. Not because I'm good, because the examples are solid. All right, here we go. Very simple. Example number one is slavery. Here's an example where the law convinced people that a behavior is wrong. Do you realize that the issue of slavery was one point in this country so controversial that we split the country in two And we fought a war with ourselves over it. Now, I know there were other issues involved, but that was a major issue. That's how controversial it was. Brothers killing brothers, fathers killing sons on different sides, opposing sides in the Civil War. It was that controversial. And at the war's end, slavery no longer existed. Not because people's hearts had been changed, but because they didn't want to go to jail. The 13th Amendment went into effect. Slavery no longer existed. But the slave owners wanted to stay out of jail, so they didn't own slaves. But their hearts weren't changed, right? So obviously, the legislation of morality did nothing to change people's perception, right? Whoa. What about today? Today, everybody believes slavery is wrong in this culture, do we not? Except morons. Everybody believes that slavery is wrong. Don't we? So what happened? Can I tell you what happened? 
over time, the law helped change attitudes. You see? No longer could somebody justify slavery by saying, well, it's legal, so it must be okay. We made something illegal that was immoral, and given enough time, people started recognizing this act is wrong. Let me, let me show you the flip side of that. Abortion. This is where the exact opposite happens. The law changes and convinces people that something that we once thought was immoral is now all of a sudden okay. Perfect example. For 200 years, abortion was illegal in the United States. We didn't allow the practice unless a mother's life was in danger. That's always been legal in the United States. And if Roe v. Wade was overturned, it still would be legal in the United States to save the life of the mother. 200 years, it was illegal. But not only was it illegal, the prevailing sentiment before that Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 was that it was immoral. How do I know that? I'm going to show you a breakdown of how many states had laws that prohibited abortion or greatly restricted it prior to that court decision in 1973. The states that you're going to see in red, shaded in red, are those that before 1973 had either banned the practice of abortion or greatly restricted it, okay? Here it is, the states in red. 50 out of 50. 50 out of 50 pre-1973 had either prohibited or greatly restricted abortion. When the court ruled in 1973, they overturned the law in 50 out of 50 states. And when 50 out of 50 states have all agreed on something, I think the prevailing sentiment of the country is pretty easy to grasp and pretty easy to understand. A majority at that time felt abortion was immoral. And yet what about today? Today we're told the country's evenly split between those that believe it's immoral and those believe that it's immoral to strip a woman of the right to choose. We're evenly split. Well, what happened? In a situation the exact reverse of slavery, the law changed, and because the law made something legal, people started believing that it was suddenly moral and appropriate. You see the power that the law does have? Is it the final authority for Christians? No, not at all. But does it have an influence? Does it have an impact? Can it help us and our culture? Absolutely. And that's why you and I are called to be the salt and the light of the world. And then finally, we get to this objection. People have different beliefs. We go back to that multiculturalism position. Again, it's important to reiterate the difference between legislating religion, forcing somebody to come to your church, worship the way you do, and legislating moral principle. There is a huge difference between the two. Honestly, answer me this question. Even if Christians wanted to, how could we set up a theocracy? How could we set up a God-rule government? I mean, we can't, as, as Christians, even agree on baptism and communion. We can't agree on some of the most basic doctrinal issues that there are. How in the world, even if we wanted to, could we set up a theocracy in this country? It's absolutely absurd. Furthermore, it's not constitutional to do it, and it's not even biblical to legislate religion on people. There's a wild concept. It's not biblical to force someone into the Christian faith. How do I say that? The Bible says the law of Moses, the strict Mosaic law code, was given only to the nation of Israel. In Psalm 147, he has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. We aren't to take the laws of Moses to Gentile countries. The Bible states Gentiles do not have the law of God. It's not our calling biblically to try to impose a biblical code on everybody that they're forced to follow. Nowhere does the Bible teach that the divine biblical law should be given, that was given strictly to this nation of Israel, should be given for the civil laws in Gentile countries. Nowhere will you find that. It is not biblical to legislate religion, but it is biblical to legislate a moral principle. See, some people will say, oh, but Peter, several Gentile countries were destroyed. Yes, they were destroyed, but they were condemned for a multitude of sins, not once for not worshiping on the Sabbath, not once for failing to bring a sacrifice to the Jerusalem temple. You see, the strict law code wasn't why they were punished. Why were they punished? They were condemned for violating the law that they'd been given. 
The Bible says the law that's been written upon every man's heart, Jew and Gentile, so that men are without excuse. That one we talked about last Sunday evening, that moral law, that concept of the unalienable rights of man. That's why Gentile countries have been destroyed. They violated the law that they've been given. You and I know that law. We have to be sharing it. That's why we must understand the difference between legislating religion and moral truth. Legislating consistently with natural law is critical. Romans 1 and 2 clearly portrays to us that God has given men a moral code and all men are to be held accountable to it. And Paul says it's written upon our hearts so that you and I are without excuse. You're an unbeliever, it doesn't matter. You have the moral law written upon your hearts and therefore you should follow its dictates. Now, Christians can easily be deceived. We're told all the time, don't you push your views off on me. I make up my own truth. I make up my own right and wrong. Don't you tell me how to live. Now, like Christians, this is admirable of us to not want to force others to follow our way of living. This is usually the result of not seeing a very apparent and obvious difference between the two. Who wrote, who wrote the moral law on men's hearts? I mean, we can answer that. God did. God wrote the moral law upon our hearts, right? Who inspired the writing of Scripture and that old Mosaic law code? God did, did He not? They come from the same source. And so if we aren't careful, we're not going to understand there's a distinction between the two and we're easily manipulated and led astray. It's logical that the Mosaic Law Code and the Moral Law are going to share similar characteristics because they come from the same source. And those who are pushing a theocracy don't seem to understand that. You see, if I gave you an ice cube and I showed you water and ice and we tested it, it would come out with the same results because it's made up of the same stuff. It comes from the same source, does it not? They're both a blend of hydrogen and oxygen molecules. We get that. They come from the same source. But do me a favor. Go out and try to figure skate on water. Or go out and try to bathe in ice. It doesn't work, does it? Why? Even though they're made from the same stuff, they come from the same source, they are intended for two different reasons, two different purposes. In the same way the Bible and the moral law, they come from the same source, but they're intended for two different purposes serve two different purposes. And for this reason, we shouldn't expect, nor should we desire to use the two interchangeably, back and forth. God gave man the moral law to be the foundational cornerstone of our civil governments. And we should understand that and speak to that. But God gave, the man, gave man the Bible to tell the story of salvation. And we shouldn't interchange the two or there's going to be problems. We can't confuse them, and some do. Look at what this the theocrat, theonomist, Rushus Rushduni, it's one of my favorite names ever. I'm going to name my son that. Rushus Rushduni, heck. Anyway, saints must prepare. Uh, Jenny's not going to allow it. Don't worry about it. Saints must prepare to take over the world's courts and its governments. Uh, this, this is what a theocrat believes. But that's not at all what I read when I read Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. But now my kingdom is from another place. You see, we have to be following the dictates of our leader, and that is understanding the differences between the two parts of the mission. The Great Commission is a spiritual command. It is not a political command. We aren't to take the gospel by the force of the sword, and if you're not a Christian, shink. That's not the way. I guess you don't use a sword like that. But you, all right, you get the point, all right? That's not what we're commanded to do. The Great Commission is not a political command. The salt and the light command, that is our political, our cultural command, and it does not call for the establishment of a theocracy. What does it call for? It calls for us to live sacrificial lives, impacting our culture in a positive way, standing for moral truth so that people are drawn closer to God by obedience to the moral law. That's what our mission is. That's what we're called to do. Religiously and culturally, we have an obligation to change our world. And if we don't, if we're not involved in this, if we're not reaching out through evangelism, and if we're not taking a stand for moral truth, my friends, we become stagnant and ineffective. We sit here in our little churches, and we come every Sunday, 
and we become useless for the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East, but if you have, you might have visited the Dead Sea. Uh, basically, what you've got, you've got the Sea of Galilee up here at the top, and then it flows down the Jordan River, and this is the Dead Sea. It's called the Salt Sea because it has no, uh, it, it, there's no place for the water to go. It pours down into the Dead Sea, and it just sits there. There's no little rivers that come out from it, and take away all the bad things or it's just everything comes in and it sits there stagnant this is a picture of the dead sea you can't sink in the dead sea uh, you can try but you, it, it's virtually impossible to drown in the dead sea because there's so much salt and minerals you can't sink i guess you could put your face down but that wouldn't be very smart all right if you've ever been there you've seen these massive piles of 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 salt that that just curls up on the side and you know they call the dead sea dead for another reason there's nothing living around it or in it why because all of the minerals and all of the sediment that comes down the Jordan River, it just sits there, and it sits, and it becomes stagnant, and it dies. Nothing living around it. Let me explain to you that too many Christians, way too many Christians, come into church on a Sunday morning, and they get fed the Word. They learn the Word. They learn the truth. And then they come back the next Sunday, and they learn more about the truth. And then they come back the next Sunday, and they learn more about the truth. And it never goes anywhere. It just sits there in them, and they become stagnant and ineffective. And pretty soon, every fruit of their life has withered and died because they're not sharing what they've learned. They're not sharing the truth of God's Word. I don't know if that name means anything to you. Mary Martin was a Broadway actress. Uh, she was the one that made Peter Pan famous. She performed Peter Pan. Uh, but she also was in a lot of other musicals as well. And she was going to star in the musical South Pacific on Broadway. And people were excited to see her perform. And it came time for that performance for the first several nights. She just stunk on ice. I mean, it was bad. Nobody enjoyed it at all. The critics were awful to her. And she was devastated by all of this. It got to the last night of her performance in South Pacific. And she got a letter backstage with some balloons and flowers attached to it. And she opened up the card and she saw that it was from, from Hammerstein who wrote the lyrics to South Pacific. And he'd written on the card these words. He said, Dear Mary, a song is not a song unless you sing it. And a bell is not a bell unless you ring it. And love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. And love isn't love until you give it away. The critics say that her performance that night was like, unlike any she had ever given in her entire career. And afterwards, amidst all of the attention she was getting, one of the critics asked her, Miss Martin, what made the difference tonight? I'm sure he didn't understand, but she just responded and said, Tonight, tonight I gave it away. Let me tell you something, folks. I don't know the love that Mary Martin had in her heart. I don't know what kind of love lived inside her, but I do know the love that lives in the heart of every single individual that is called and has been redeemed and is serving the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it changed the world once, stood the world on its head. And I believe it can do it again if you and I are willing to give it away. Tumbles down 
Statistics say, if we're lucky, we have 80 years. Some of you have already used up more of those than others. What are you doing to make a difference that's going to last? Beauty fades, passion wanes, faces show their years. The singer loses his song, but love, love goes on. What are you doing with what you've been given for the sake of the kingdom of God? You know, so often we look around at all of the evil and all of the problems in our society and our culture, all of the hurting, and we almost shake our fists at God and we say, why God, in your infinite power, 
and grace. Did you not do something about this? But if we listen, he answers us back. And he says to us, I did do something about it. I made you go share my love and change the world. That's my prayer for each of you and for this church. I can't tell you how much I love every single one of you, and it's been such a wonderful opportunity to be back. I pray the best for you. Would you pray, would you pray with me as we close? Father God, it's such an awesome responsibility. It's such an awesome calling to be an ambassador for your kingdom. It's something that's intimidating, and it frightens even the most stout-hearted among us, God. And I just pray that you would encourage us, that you would inspire us to get in your word, to know your word, and to live your word. Lord, that we can shine like stars in the universe. We fail so often, and that you want to continue to use our failures and our faults to bring glory to you is something that I don't think any of us will ever understand. But we praise you for it, and we thank you for it. You can do immeasurably more than anything we could ever imagine. And Lord, we pray that right now for this church, that it would be a beacon of light in this community, that it would reach out to the lost and bring in the hurting by showing them the love of your son. And God, I pray for each individual that they would recognize the charge that they've been given to always be prepared to give an answer, that they would be inspired to find those answers and that they would be motivated to change their world. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to serve you. We pray all this in the name of your Son and our risen and conquering and living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages.